Are we good to go? <laughs> Continuing our study of the 119th Psalm, the longest chapter in the book of Tehillim. This is part two in the verses that correspond to the letter Tzaddik. Today we'll study verses 139 and 140, Kuflam and Kufmem. King David opens by expressing extraordinary emotional angst. Tsimsasni. Tsimsasni. What does that mean? So first of all, it's interesting to point out that this word shows up nowhere anywhere in the Bible. <laughs> this is the only example of this word ever. There is only one cross-reference for it. And the cross-reference, where a word that's similar to it is found in the book of Leviticus, there, in chapter 25, verse 23, it speaks of the land of Israel, real estate, selling property. And the Torah ordains, The land must not be sold. Now, as a rule, we translate this as the land must not be sold in perpetuity. Rashi says, Ha'aretz le'simacher le'tzmisus, le'tzmisus, Rashi says, le'psika. Word psika means to sever, to truncate, to break. And that is to say, the land should not be sold in such a way as to sever it permanently from its original owner. Because invariably, when you sell a parcel of land in Eretz Yisrael, once the Jubilee arrives, it will revert back to its original owner. Tsimsasni. I'm broken. I'm shattered. I'm severed. What does this word mean? And the interesting thing is that Tsimsasni, Kinasi, the origin, the thing that causes tsimsasni is my zealousness, my jealous, my righteous anger. What causes this righteous anger, which brings about this breaking, so to speak, of David HaMelech? For my adversaries, my enemies have forgotten your words. Okay, let's take a look at the commentaries here. I think I've pointed out that this is a, a difficult verse to wrap one's head around, a difficult verse to translate. I'm going to share with you soon a translation that I found, the English translation, in two different sets or two different volumes and explain to you why I think both are right and both are wrong. Rashi says, Tsimsasni kinosi. Tsimsasni. Hakinoshali. My zealousness, my righteous anger. I am jealous for your name. I am zealous for your name. Due to those who forget your word. It breaks me. It incites me. Bohem. So David HaMelech is angry. Enraged, inflamed, Tsimsasni. Sasni means broken. 
So I saw this translated in some English tilims as incensed. I'm incensed. I'm incensed with zealous, righteous anger. So I, I looked into the etymology of the word incensed, and what I came up with is, full of wrath, we're inflamed with anger. I don't know how that fits with the word simsasni, which means broken. I don't, I don't see how inflamed or enraged or filled with wrath is reflected in the word simsasni. There are words for anger in the Torah. Simsasni, not one of them. Now Rashi doesn't really translate the word simsasni. He says, the kina, the jealous anger or the jealous emotion, the zealous emotion, that I am zealously inflamed with, for those who forget your word, but Rashi doesn't tell us what it means. It's tzimsasni. Tzimsasni is the word that's used in the Tilim itself. And Rashi says, hitsoimsa. What does it mean? It doesn't tell us. The Mitsudas Tzien says that the word tzimsasni is inyin krisa. It means cut. And he says, no, it's not such an unusual word. Hashem. He sends us back to the 94th Psalm. In the 94th Psalm, David HaMelech says, let Hashem cut them down. So Tzimsasni shows up nowhere. We find Tzmisus in the actual Torah, but the Mitzudasian says, Yatzmisem Hashem, Hashem should cut them down. So how does this work for David HaMelech's feelings? David HaMelech is cut up. The Mitzudas David kind of elaborates. He says, Hakaas Korsa Oisi. Anger cuts me. The anger cuts me. Kitsorai Shachachud Varecha. For my enemies have forgotten your words. The Hadover who machis Oisi. The fact that they forget your word angers me. Oh, so you're just getting angered. So why do you have to say, Tsimsasni? Say, I was angered. And because he had to find a way to fit this into the letter tzaddik is not a good answer. <laughs> That's not a good answer. David Melch wanted to express himself this way. I'm asking you why. The Ibn Ezra says, Tzimsasni, Kimat v'tzimsasni. I was almost Tzimsasni, but he doesn't tell what it is. He says, and my heart died within me. Well, if David Amel's heart would die within him, he wouldn't be alive anymore. So it's like his almost heart almost died. I almost got cut. The Radak says, kind of the same thing, but he, he, he uses a more of a, an elaboratory word. He says, my anger almost finished me off. It almost consumed me. Kishani roya tzore. When I see my anger, when I see my adversaries, my enemies, sheshachud varecha, that they have forgotten your words. Kiilu leitziva b'hem, as if you would never have commanded your words. Ve'era oisam atzlichim. Radak adds, I see their success. 
I'm get very jealous of them. So Radak says, I'm just a jealous old man. <laughs> I'm jealous of ha, what's going on here. They forget your words and they're successful and I don't. And they forget your words as if they would never have been commanded. And they're successful anyway. So I'm jealous of their success. And because I'm jealous of their success, so because of that, I'm, I'm uh, cut up. Oh, this is very hard to understand. Okay, so the other English word that I saw to translate the word simsasni was consume. And this actually resonates with me a little bit more because, because the Ibn Ezra seems, says, Kematvit Simsasni. I was always like consumed, like I almost died. So when I did a search, when I searched for the etymology of the word consume, the, what I came up with is it's a, it's a 15th century word and it means to destroy by separating into parts. Like, to break something apart in a way that it cannot be reunited. Hence, to destroy the substance of or annihilate. So in my humble opinion, those who translate it as incensed are mistaken. And those who translate it as consume are technically translating it in a more correct way. The truth is that both incensed and consume are common and the way typical people understand English because both mean very angry or consumed with anger or filled with anger. But by the cut and dry, the word consume actually is a reflection of the meaning of the Hebrew word simsasni. So simsasni means to break apart. It means to cut or to break. You see, when Rashi says in, in Chumash, Rashi says, lepsika means to break, to sever. David Melech says, I, I am just about broken apart. I'm broken up. My anger breaks me up. It's like, it's, it's killing me, he said. It's killing me to see the way my adversaries, the way my enemies are successful, as if you never would have commanded anything. It's killing me. So David Melech is consumed, is being broken apart, ripped apart by jealousy. What in heaven is going on here? The Torah says we are prohibited from taking any kind of vengeance. We're also prohibited from being jealous of somebody else. You shouldn't be angry at somebody. You shouldn't hold grudges. Then the Torah tells us in Aseris Adibris, not only you can't be angry and hold grudges, but you're not even about to be jealous of somebody who has something. Forget if he did something to you or not. He didn't do anything to you. You know how to be jealous. You know how to ruminate on the jealousy that you feel. How could the Torah command us, don't be jealous? What if a person feels jealous? They see something that somebody else has and they're gripped with envy. So the Rambam explains in Sefer HaMitzvahs that you don't violate the mitzvah when you feel a twinge of envy. You violate the mitzvah when you ruminate, when you contemplate, when you think about the envy, and you start to then imagine, how might I be able to get this? What can I do so that the object that somebody else has that makes me so jealous becomes mine? Dovina Melech seems to be saying, not only am I jealous, not only am I envious of other people's success or what they have, it's killing me. 
I'm ripped apart by jealousy. It's like I'm almost killed by it. What's, what's going on over here? Where, where is this? This is righteous. This is righteous zealousness. This is holy anger because other people are successful. It sounds like, hey, I'm so religious. I'm trying so hard to serve God. I'm trying to stick to the letter of the law, and God is really beating up on me. But these guys, they don't care about the good book. They've forgotten about what the Torah says, and God makes them successful. I'm so jealous. That's inspirational. That's something you and I are supposed to try to emulate. So now that I told you the pshat of the word, and you hear what the literal meaning is, let's try to understand what David Melech is saying. So the Medrash Tillam says like this, also known as the Medrash Shechetev, the Medrash Tillam says, Omar David, here's what David really said. Ani mekana, I am jealous. I'm not jealous of the fact that the wicked are able to consume or enjoy the word achila, which literally means to eat, which is, by the way, why it means consume, because when you eat something, you actually do rip it to pieces. <laughs> you digest it and separate it, and it can never be put back together again. But he says, the idea of achila doesn't only mean physical eating. It means to ingest, for a technical term, to download, to absorb. He says, I'm not jealous of the delights that they're enjoying or absorbing, Shoda Shoyim. Not the Achilasan. Not in what they're proverbially eating. Leibishtiyasan. Not what they're proverbially drinking or partaking of. I'm angered by the goodness that you're doing, God. And how they have forgotten your Torah. And you keep giving them. My, my, I'm abandoned. My soul abandons me over the peace that they have. That's why it says, because they have forgotten your words. My enemies have forgotten your words. So the Medrash Tillam tells us, David HaMelech is not jealous of the wicked's prosperity. He's jealous that God, he's angry at God for giving them prosperity. Okay, so we had a problem. Our problem was, why in heaven is David HaMelech jealous of other people? That's not a nice thing. Envy is not something which is appropriate. We should not learn to be envious. We should not emulate that behavior, it would seem. Medrash Tillam says, no, no, no. He's not envious. He's angry. He's angered by the prosperity. He's not envious of the fact that they are absorbing these delights and enjoying this pleasure. He's angry at God. How could you do this, God? What? This makes you feel better? <laughs> this helps you. David Amelah said in the previous verses, everything God does is good. All of God's judgment is upright. I believe everything that you do in all of your Torah and all of your judgment is perfect. And the very next word he says, oh, by the way, I'm incensed. I'm so angry. 
I'm consumed, I'm being ripped apart by the fact that you give all these people goodness when they turn their back on you and forget you. You just said everything God does is good. What in heaven is going on over here? So the Ma'am Loyes has an extraordinary illumination. I really don't know what we would do without Imam Loyas today because, like, knocked my head against the wall. I couldn't figure this out. He explains this as follows. David HaMelech is in educating and instructing us as to the true meaning of Ahav Hashem. The true meaning of one who is filled with love for God. Also, if you see somebody doing something bad, you're not angry that that person has hurt you. Because they have violated the word of God. What does this mean? Mamloyas gives us this beautiful metaphor. It's going to radically shift and alter the way you understand this. Suppose, somebody were to take something else. Somebody were to take something from somebody else. Unlawfully. Big neighbor. A big zailer. Either surreptitious theft or brazen, outright commandeering. So what happens? So over Bezavetus, the person who surreptitiously stole, or the person who brazenly grabbed that which belongs to somebody else, usurping somebody else's objects or properties, has now, in a sense, violated two, so to speak, domains. Klape Shmaya, he has done a sin, he has done unlawfully and immorally towards heaven. The Klape Odom, and also towards a person. Now, that is to say, when we talk about mitzvot that are being adam lechaviro, mitzvot that govern interpersonal relationship versus mitzvot that govern God-people relationship. So, for example, observing the Shabbat. If one, heaven forfend, does not observe the Shabbat, you have not offended anybody. You have not taken anything from anybody. You have offended God. If one eats food that's not kosher, you have not harmed anybody. You've harmed yourself. You violated your bond with God. However, if one is not observant of, for example, the laws of property, the notion that somebody else is the rightful owner, and you take that, you have violated your bond with God as well as your bond with your fellow human being. By means of metaphor, to illustrate this point, if a person has committed a sin against God by violating one of the ritual obligations that Judaism places upon us, and he or she wishes to do tshuva, wishes to return to a sense of innocence, wishes to restore the soul and spirit to what it was before it was bludgeoned by these 
sins, what would somebody have to do? They'd have to regret sincerely, have regret and remorse that's followed by resolve. Now, who do you talk to to express your regret, your remorse? The answer is to God. The mitzvah of tshuva, in its literal iteration, as the Rambam spells out in the beginning of Hilchas tshuva, is vidui dvarim, to verbalize. Oshamnu, bagadnu, gazalnu. We're guilty. We have behaved in a brazen, rebellious way. We're talking to God. And that works really well any day of the year. It works extra specially well if you do it on Erev Yom Kippur because as long as you enter Yom Kippur with a state of profound regret, if you're contrite about the things you did wrong and the omissions, the things you didn't but could have done, Yom Kippur will cleanse you. But if the things you did wrong or the omissions that were made impacted somebody else if they hurt another person then you can plead with God until the sun goes down Yom Kippur won't help you you need to make it right with that person as well now we tend to compartmentalize the two kinds of sins into sins against God and sins against people that is to say if I violate Jewish ritual that's an issue of ben adom lamakom, between the person and between God. If I harmed, hurt, shamed, or did something inappropriate to somebody else, I've hurt that person. Amloya says that's not correct. When I hurt God, so to speak, when I violated my bond with God, I sinned against God. When I harmed another person, if I hurt you, I hurt you and I hurt God. Both. That's to say that ben adam lechavero is also ben adam lamokrim. To harm another person is also to harm your bond with God. Because in Judaism, our focus is not on rights. That's a selfish focus. My rights. And my rights were violated. And if you did something wrong to me, you violated my rights. The Western world's obsessed with rights. The Torah is obsessed with doing the right thing. And the right thing is to be responsible. It's not about me violating your rights. It's about me violating my responsibilities. I'm responsible to treat you with respect. I'm responsible to respect your property. I'm responsible to respect your physical well-being. I'm responsible to you. And I'm also responsible to God. So when instead of focusing on my rights, you hurt me, instead we focus on my responsibility to you and to God. So when I sinned by behaving irresponsibly towards you, hurting you, I've also, through my irresponsibility, ultimately, proverbially speaking, impacted my relationship with God as well. I've, so to speak, hurt God. As it says in the Torah, God says in Parshas Hazino, through Meshach Rabbeinu, Tzur Yilodcha Teshi, you have weakened 
the rock that has birthed you. It's a euphemism for God. When we commit a sin, we proverbially speaking as if weaken God. That's what God says. God says, you hurt me. So the Ma'am lawyers is saying, when a person sees somebody else sin, say you see somebody else violating Shabbat. You see somebody eating not kosher food and you're a zealously observant Jew and you get really angry. You say, look at that guy. He's, he's, he's violating his bond with God. I'm so angry. I'm so angry that, that he's behaving or she's doing something which is so wrong. Are you really angry for God? Or maybe jealous. Hey, why can't I do that? Well, if they can do it and get away with it, I should be able to do that too. Think about that. Or, or says the mom loyes, if somebody robs another in any which way surreptitiously brazenly the point is to come and there's somebody else's property so the nigzal the victim how does the victim feel the victim is violated the victim is angry the victim is in pain the victim suffers loss says the mamloyas han nigzal koyev gozal menu be honest. He stole your money. You're angry that he stole your money. Are you equally angry when the same person steals somebody else's money? No, I wouldn't be. Because I'm not David Amalekh. I'm angry when you hurt me. I'm angry when you hurt my loved ones. I'm not as angry when you hurt somebody else. That's a problem. And the problem is, because really and truly what we're angry at is not the sin. I claim to be angry at you for sinning. I thunder at you. How dare you steal my things? The Torah says, Lysignaivu. What I'm really saying is, how dare you take my things? The Torah didn't say, don't take my things. The Torah said, don't take from anybody. But I'm angry because you took it from me. So my righteous zeal isn't actually righteous. It's selfish. My dear friends, the overwhelming vast majority of zealous people are not zealous for God. They're selfishly zealous. They see somebody else sin and they wish they could do the same thing or get away with it. So the way they kind of assuage those guilty feelings that they are jealous of what you did is by being angry at you. Selfish zealousness, it's worthless. Pinchas is the great zealot. Hashem says, I give him briti shalom. Why? Why did God have to give him the covenant of peace? Because all the tribes of Israel said whether what Pinchas did, if it's right or not, is not the question. The question is what motivated him. It's right if he did it, if he was objectively zealous. But if it was subjective if it was an expression of his own violent nature, if it was him using the law to express himself in an unbridled and typically illegal way, even if it's legal, it's illegal. What does Hashem say? You have him wrong. Pinchas, he is the righteous zealot. He was angry. Angry for me, says God, not because he was personally violated. 
And this, Ma'am Loya says, is the meaning of Tzimsasni. Loikin hadover in ben yignev ma'aviv. What happens, he says, if a, a son steals from his father? The father is not angered by the fact that he was victimized. Then the father would be angry by who victimized him. He's offended by the sin itself, not by the loss. There's a big difference of being, so to speak, the victim of theft of a stranger or the victim of theft of your own child. When the stranger victimizes you, you're angry at the stranger for victimizing you. When your child victimizes you, you're hurt that your child would do something like that. And that is the metaphor. We should be angered at what's being done because it's a violation of Hashem's word. V'zehu sha'oymer David. This says, is what David says, Tzimsasni. He's literally annihilated. He's ripped apart. He's broken into pieces by Kinosi, by his zealous anger. But his zealous anger is caused by one thing. Because my enemies have forgotten your words. I'm not angry because they're my enemies. I'm not angry because they're prospering. I'm not jealous selfishly. I'm not angry because I was hurt or I was left behind. Ma'am Loya says, David Melech actually learned from the best. If you look carefully, you'll see that Abraham, Avram Avinu, the father of our faith system, rebukes Avimelech, powerful monarch, in his time. He rebukes Avimelech about the wells, wells that Avram Avinu had dug, wells that the servants of Avimelech had usurped. Avram Avinu was offended, hurt, angered, not by the theft, the usurping of the wells themselves. Anybody can be victimized by criminals. But when the criminalization is institutionalized, when theft is the government's own policy, this, Avraham Avinu says, has angered him. How, how did the governing powers, how did the ruling monarch allow this kind of immorality? How did the king, how did the law enforcer sign off on lawlessness? That, he says, was Avraham Avinu's Teichocha. It wasn't that the wells were stolen. It was who stole the wells. And so paraphrasing, Avraham Avinu's anger at government, at the monarch, and his endorsement of anti-Semitic theft, 
is the precursor or forerunner for David HaMelech learning not to be angry in a selfish way. Not to be angry about the matter of fact, but what it represents. David HaMelech has angered. He's broken up. He's consumed with this rage. And the rage, the anger, the frustration, which is entirely debilitating to the point that David feels like it almost killed me, is that people mock and violate the words of Hashem and they get away with it. He's not angry at God. He's angry for God. His anger, his righteous zeal is not selfishly motivated, but selflessly motivated. He's aggrieved. He's in pain. He's hurt, debilitatingly hurt, because of what he sees. It's the chil Hashem, it's the desecration of holiness that pains him so deeply. You know, the Rebbe would become upset about things, issues, things that harm the Jewish people. And we would hear this by the Fabrengen, the Rebbe's voice would choke with emotion. The Rebbe was, was sometimes so angry, so upset, but it was never directed at a person. The Rebbe never personalized those feelings. He was angry in principle. He was angry for the shanda, for the shame, for, for, for the, the terrible low that the Jewish people were experiencing. When the ruling powers in Israel lacked the sense of pride and dignity, when they groveled before the enemies of the Jewish people to receive nothing in return, bothered the Rebbe. Not because it wasn't his approach or his idea, you could hear, you could hear the kinah, the kinah is Hashem. You could hear the anger on Hashem's behalf, the anger on Am Yisrael's behalf. And you could see this because he never mentioned the name and he never personalized. And he continued to love each individual and every single Yid as much as he abhorred their actions. That is Davidic. In fact, that's divine. That's a Yid who lives for the Eibishter, for Almighty God, in a way that becomes totally transparent of self and transcendent of agendas. That's what David HaMelech wanted to share with us. And that is something we should all seek to emulate. Why is David HaMelech so hurt at the denigration of Torah and its being ignored? So he follows in the next verse and he says, Tsurufa imrascha. Your words are so pure. Ma'id, so exceedingly pure. Va'avdecha aheva. And your servant loves it. He's not self-congratulating him, him himself. He's not patting himself on the back. This statement is not, is not preening himself. David Amalek is explaining his anger. His anger is motivated by love. The negative feelings, this righteous sense of jealousy on God's behalf, 
It's the flip side of his love for Hashem's Torah. I once had to sit on a panel many years ago. It's a panel about, about hate. And the question that was asked was, does Judaism endorse hate? I happened to be in New York several days before I was sitting on this panel that I was very concerned about sitting there. And I, I was worried. I, was, I wanted to say the right thing. And I approached an elder colleague of mine who's widely known for his ability to articulate very profound and deep ideas. And I said, can I ask you a question? He said, sure. I said, oh, I have to sit in this panel. Do we hate? He said, of course we hate. Of course we hate. The Torah says you hate. He tells me a whole litany of verses and expressions, some Davidic. Of course we hate. I wasn't sure that was somehow didn't sit with, well with me. And a short while later, I bumped into the most brilliant man I know, Rabbi Yael Khan. He is the individual who is personally responsible for recording the Rebbe's teachings. The Rebbe once said about Rabbi Yael, the Rebbe said that um, the question was who would carry the Rebbe's Torah at the Hakafas. And the Rebbe said, Gittes Rebbeel er chazertach mein Torah. Give it to Rebbeel. Rabbi Yol Khan, he reviews, he records my teachings. Is Rebbeel's genius is just like off the charts. His profundity, his grasp of his clarity is simply unmatched and unparalleled. So I bumped into Rebbeel, who I is a young student, had the privilege in 770 of learning a little bit from him. And I said uh, to him in Yiddish, Abiel, can I ask you a question? And he says, looked at me like, okay, fine. I'm, I'm kind of busy, but make it, make it snappy. I said, Abiel, just tell me. And I said to him, I have to sit in this thing. I just want to know, does a Jew hate? <laughs> he looked at me with eyes that at once bespoke pity and derision. And he said to me, Chas v'shalom, he said to me, Heaven forfend, Yidatit gefeint, he says to me, A Jew never hates. So I said, But Abiel, and I started to, you know, chapter and verse, all these things that this other colleague of mine had just mentioned a few minutes ago. It says A, it says B, it says C. Abiel explained to me that hate is a debilitating emotion. It's a positive emotion. People who hate, they, they hate. That becomes their definition. He says, that is never, ever kosher, he says. We have to love, he said to me. And because you love Hashem, and because you love that which is righteous, and because you love that which is holy, the flip side, the back side of that, will be hatred towards the things that threaten or harm that which you love. And he taught me the most powerful lesson in life. I, Baruch Hashem, was successful on that panel, thanks to the his teaching, but he taught me such an incredibly profound thing. If somebody harms your child, or if there's harmful things that threaten your child, you hate that person or those things, but you're not motivated by hate. You're motivated by love. It's because you love your child that you hate the things that will harm them. Our enemies hate. Nazis hate. Terrorists hate. We love. We love Hashem. 
We love our family. We love our extended nuclear family of Am Yisrael. We love righteousness. We love goodness. We love fairness. We love justice. And because we love those things, we will naturally detest anything that hurts or serves as an obstacle to their promulgation. David HaMelech is ripped apart, cut up, broken up, almost to the point of self-annihilation by his righteous anger. But the righteous anger is not an object in and of itself. Tzimsasni kinosi, the being broken apart and ripped up by the anger, is precisely because tzurufim rascha, because Hashem is so pure, Hashem's Torah is so pure, because ve'avdecha heva, because David is subservient to Hashem. And we use the terminology of subservience. He's an Eved. It's not about David. It's all about God. He's in love with Hashem's words. And because he pulsates and radiates with such a love, because he appreciates imrascha, me'oid, because he appreciates the purity of Hashem's words so exceedingly, that breaks him apart. That angers him. That nearly annihilates him. It's a very different statement. Pasuk Kuflametes can only be understood when it is coupled with Pasuk Kufmem. Psalm 140 is the basis for David Amelk's previous statement. So let's examine this business of Tsrufa. What does that mean, Tsrufa? Rashi comments not. The Metsudas Tzian says Tsrufa is Inyin Haschus. It means something that's profoundly meritorious. Toihar, something which is very pure. But here, purity is not to be understood in the ritualistic sense, as in not tamay, not ugly, not sealed off, not separated from God, which is not a physical concept. In fact, there is no, there is no really alter ego in any other language for the words tamay and tahar when we speak of them ritualistically speaking. Because ritualistically speaking, the notion of tahara and tuma are not a reflection of our common human experience. The notion of that which is tame is because, because God says it's tame. And the notion of tahara, of purity, is because Almighty God says it's pure. And it's not something which is reflected in our own feelings, understanding, or experience. And that's why it's called a chok, it's called a statute. But here, actually, David Amalek doesn't use the word tahara, he uses the word tsrufa. So Mitsuda Tzian says it doesn't mean ritualistically pure. It doesn't mean tahar. It means toihar mibleep soilus. It means, like the English word pure, literally, it is purified of any dross or toxins. So... If you, if you think of you know, pure spring water, what does that mean? It means it's unpolluted. It means it doesn't have anything, any impurity mixed into it. Umushalhu, it is a borrowed phrase. It's almost anthropomorphical because God's words can't be pure, can't be 
cleaned of dross, what does it mean? He says it's mushal, it's a, it's a borrowed phraseology. It comes milishoin tsroif kesef. It comes from the idea of silver, which is purified or cleansed. Because when silver comes out of the ground, it's filled with toxins and impurities, and those have to be removed in the smelting process. The Mitsudas David explains, he says, Ratzalaymar, pardon me, Imraschatsrufa, your verbiage, your words, God are pure, misig ushgia, from dross. What's the equivalent of literary dross? Typos, mistakes. Lochain a'ahevoisa. That's why I love them so much. So, what does that mean? God's words are cleansed or purified from toxins. Is it possible for God's words to have things extraneous? It's God's words. What does that mean? The Ibn Ezra says, Tsurufa. What's the emphasis here? For what they have abandoned. But there's no dross. There's no toxin. There's nothing extraneous. Everything is so clean, without any doubt. So David Amalek saying, I'm ripped apart by righteous anger because they ignore your words, but your words are so pure. Uh, what, as if God's words could not have been pure? The Radak says, Tzrufa, it's blemishless. There's nothing foreign in them. How could there be something foreign? It's God's words. You know, the manna was divine nourishment. And the manna is a metaphor also for Torah. And the Medrash tells us, Rashi actually quotes this in Pshutesh Mikra, in his literal straightforward interpretation of the verses. That the manna was food that would not require digestion. They would eat the food and it would melt into their body. Digestion is a process of refinement. Refining that which is able to be absorbed into the body in a healthy way. And that requires it being broken down to the point that it can be seamlessly assimilated and transformed into plasma, flesh, and sinew. And, and the food that we eat is filled with dross and toxins. So we eat it. First we break it up. And after we finish breaking it up, the moment it hits your saliva, there's already a breaking down of the amino acids in the food because that's the nature of saliva. It breaks things down. In a very graphic way, your teeth grind and puree the food, and then it goes into your stomach where the food is pounded and worked over. And at some point, the body is able to extract the positive and then has to work at reframing or kind of reforming the toxins so that it can be fully cleansed 
and eventually pushed out of the body. That's known as digestion. And subsequent to digestion, the body performs waste removal. That's what happens from your mouth to the bottom that you sit on. It goes in one direction. The mass of food comes out the other direction. It looks and smells very different from the way it entered your body. It's a pile of excrement, extraneous, harmful, poisonous material. Poisonous for people, by the way. It's excellent for fertilization. It does wonders to soil, but it's terrible for a person. And if, God forbid, your, your kidneys aren't working, God forbid, if you're not able to have your small intestines finish the process and push it out of your body, you're in big, big trouble. You'll be poisoned, you're going to die, God forbid. So the manna was not lechem in ha'aretz, food that comes from the ground. Now, the, the soil is foreign to us. The soil has nutrients, but the nutrients of the soil cannot sustain a person. So the soil's nutrients are able to nourish the crops. The crops, in turn, can nourish us. But it's foreign. It's a foreign agent. You're ingesting something foreign into your body. So you can extrapolate that which is good, and then you push out that which isn't. But manna, that's from heaven. That's not foreign to us. That's made by God for us. So we didn't have to digest the manna. It went into our body and was seamlessly melted into our existence. Of course, it never provided any satiation because it wasn't designed to satiate, per se. It was designed to hydrate and nourish us. We drank miraculous water. We ate miraculous food. And we stayed alive. Perpetually hungry, but we stayed alive. And the Jewish people grumbled about this. By the way, just to make the experience a little more enjoyable, Hashem allowed it to taste like just about anything except for a few toxic tastes. But the people still complained. And here's my point. If manna needs not digestion, what is the meaning of the Torah has no dross? How could Torah have dross? How could Torah have something extraneous? Our world is a genunya. In Yiddish, a gemish, a mixture. Our world, ever since Adam and Eve ingested the fruit of the tree of knowledge, we've been plunged into this toxic, noxious mix where all that is good has bad, and all that is bad has some good. And ever since then, our job is to kind of rectify or perfect that major imperfection undo the damage that Adam and Eve did. That's called Avedas Habirurim, the work of refinement. That's the real meaning of Tikkun Olam, that bandied about, perverted, and twisted beyond its original meaning phrase, which really means to serve Hashem, to utilize the material and the mundane, which is powered by klipa, by the extraneous forces that God created, so that we can extract the seeds of light 
so that we can extract the positivity and redeem it. So the question, of course, is what is the meaning of tsurufa? How could you say? I mean, it's what the Mepharshim seem to talk about. A refinement and a cleansing. Very difficult to understand this. When we look into the Medrash, so the Sifri, in Piskam Emches, the Sifri, of course, is the Medrash Halacha, the books of Bamidbar, Numbers and Devarim Deuteronomy. So the Sifri on Devarim says on these words, Nimshala Divrei Teirolumayim. The Torah is metaphorized as water. Mamayim Chaim Le'olam, just as water are always a source of life elixing strength, hydration that keeps us fresh and vivacious. Kach Chaim They're eternally good, always a source of hydration, always a life elixir. Shanemar, as it's written in the book of Proverbs, Shlomo HaMelech said, Ki Chaim Heim they are life, life elixing for those who find them. And then the Sifri goes on to say that it's not just about hydration, but just as water when it is held still in concentration serves to elevate one from a sense of ritual impurity. So too, water not only has the property of hydration, but also the property of purification. It can lift, it can lift those who are impure from their state of impurity, which organically means to be sealed off, impervious or insensitive to holiness, to God's presence. Because it says your words are refined. What does that mean? What is the Sifri telling me? The Torah is like water, which is always a source of hydration and purification because it was cleansed? What does that mean? What else could Torah be? The Sifri goes on to say, Just as water is able to serve to restore one's sense of equilibrium, like Mayim Karim, Al Nefesh again, quoting Proverbs, like cool waters on the tired soul. Person feels wilted and wasted, and then there's a cool, refreshing sense. Kach so too, words of Torah are refreshing. Meshivim Hashem Tamima, the Torah of Hashem is perfect. Meshivas Nafesh. It restores or refreshes one's soul. And, and I'm, I'm reading these words and I'm, I'm not understanding. How, how else might we have seen the Torah? Did I need David Amelech's observation? Is that why he was so angry? Is that why he was so ripped apart and almost self-annihilated with frustration and zealous rage because they didn't appreciate the Torah that was so pure, so life-elixing, so refreshing, so purifying because it's so pure? It's Torah. What do you mean it's true for me'oid? 
as if Torah could have been Tzrufa or Tzrufa Ma'id. The Medrash Rabbah on Chumash Vayikra and Parshal Amadalov says, Reb Yitzchak Posach, Reb Yitzchak, he opened his mouth, or as Chassidus explains it, Posach, he opened a pipeline to a new horizon of understanding. He says, What does this mean? What does it mean that your words are exceedingly refined and your servant loves them? Like the smelter who puts the, the gold, who puts the gold ore back into the crucible and he refines it a second time and a third time. Until he's removed all dross, all toxin, all impurity. It was said, it was repeated, and then thrice a third time. Imagine this. It's self-understood, self-evident. In If one small teaching of the Torah was repeated and then reviewed a third time, that all of the large, important, foundational portions of Torah, And I'm saying, I don't understand. I don't understand. In the Psikta that of Kahana and Parshiyot Beis, Omar Rabbi Ovin, Rabbi Ovin says, Divritera Nimshalu Bekonditun. The words of Torah are metaphorized as a spiced, a spicy wine. Ma Konditun, the way just, just to be honest with you, I didn't even know what a Konditun is, Konditun. So I went to the good old Jastro. I was ashamed. I should know this, but I didn't. So the Jastro says that Konditon is a spiced wine. And he says it's a kind of wine that has a sharp or a pungent taste to it. It means spiced wine, he says. It's a spiced wine that contains wine, honey, and pepper. That's what Konditon is. He quotes various sources indicating that sometimes the spices are infused into the wine. How they infuse the spices in the wine. Grinding spices for the purposes of infusion. Okay? So it's a spicy wine. And the Psikta says, Ravavan says that the words of Torah are like a spicy wine. Just like this spicy wine, like the Jastro says, it has wine, but I didn't understand what that means before I saw it. It has dvash, it has honey. It has, it has pepper. It has yayin. It has wine. How do you know it has wine? What are you talking about? Song of songs. It says, Okay, so Torah has wine. David HaMelech says, sweeter than honey. Yeshba and Pilpulin. It has spices. It's got pepper. That's what he says. He calls it pepper. How do you know it has pepper? Because your words are very pure. And now, apparently pure, 
means peppery. Wow. That, that helps, doesn't it? Pure as peppery. Tsrufa. Me'oid. Very, exceedingly pure. Exceedingly peppery. What? I'm so lost, my friends. What in heaven is going on here? Medrash Shechetev, Medrash Tilim says, Mahu Tzrufam Rascha. Yes, my question. What does it mean? Your words are exceedingly pure. Oh, oh, Marshall. We're going to get a parable. You know what a parable is? A parable is a story. Why do we use parables? Why do we use stories? Because some people can't relate to ideas. They're too profound. They're too deep. Stories? I like a story. Everybody likes a story. I once heard a rabbi tell, he said, he said, which literally means it's not the pontificating, it's not the expounding of the idea, it's the action of the idea. But this rabbi said in a homolytic way, it's not how well you expound the ideas of Torah. If you want a good sermon, tell a good story. Stories people relate to. Now you're talking to me. So we're bringing a deep and profound idea into our realm by means of a story. A story that will illustrate the profundity. Oh, great. I love stories, right? Marriage is going to give us a story. The story goes like this. Once upon a time, there lived a king. And the king had a silver bowl. This sounds like a great story. And the king had a silver bowl. So what would a king do with a silver bowl? Well, Nasan HaKesef Litzayrif. He took his silver dish or bowl and he gave it to the silversmith. Omar Lay, he said to him, Tsarfehu. He said to him, refine it. Refine this silver dish. Refine it. He put it into the smelting furnace. And then he removed it. And he brought the silver bowl and dish back to the king. And the king looked at the silver bowl and dish. And he said, Go back and refine it some more. Make it even cleaner, more pure. Okay, palm shenis. So he went and put it back into the furnace. And then he returned the bowl and the king said, Tsarfeo Pam Shlishis, do me a favor. Put it back a third time. Says the Medr Shaykhotev Medr Shtilim, So God purified the Torah, not one, not two, not three times like the Medr says, Mem Tespomim, 49 times. Here is an expression. From the book of Proverbs, from King Solomon Shlomo HaMelech, which actually makes its way into our holiday liturgy. Indeed, your words are perfectly refined and purified. They're so pure. They've been refined, smelted, gone to the crucible seven times. Seven, no, Shivasayim is not seven. Shivasayim is seven times seven. Ah, seven times seven, you don't need to be an accountant. Right, 49. The Torah is expounded and expounded and expounded 49 times. And that's the meaning of Kol Imr Selekat Srufa. 
Every word of God is so refined, so purified. The words are so purified. Oy vey, my friends, I'm still so confused. I'm not made any wiser. I've had various stories and parables proffered. And I still don't understand. How could the Torah have something impure? The Ma'am Loyas offers us what I think is a glimmer of explanation. Ubir he says. I'm going to presume he's bothered by what bothers me or maybe not. But at any rate, this is the explanation he offers. A person drinks a little bit of wine. It says, the Gemara says, Yisova. It satiates. If you drink a lot of wine, Yitzma. It makes you thirsty for more. So a little bit of wine satisfies. A lot of wine induces thirst. Kain ha So it is with Torah. You'll learn a little bit of Torah. It's very satisfying. But if you learn a lot of Torah, you'll never be satisfied. You always want more. The nature of learning a lot of Torah is that you want more and more Torah. Incidentally, the Rebbe explains the idea of the manna in exactly this fashion. He says when God describes the manna through Moshe Rabbeinu, he says, He starved you. He starved you through feeding you. How could you be starved by being fed? And the Rebbe says that manna, that the food, the miraculous food that nourished the Jewish people for 40 years, for four decades in the desert, is metaphorized as Torah. And he says, he tormented you, he starved you, because the more you fed, the more you wanted. He says, this is the nature of Torah. Torah never satiates. When a person studies Torah properly, I'm not talking about hearing a little vort, a little adage, a little something, that an aphorism that uplifts you and inspires you, and then you go about your day. I'm talking about really learning Torah. When you really learn Torah, you're never satisfied. And every question you find answer opens the door to new questions. And every arena of understanding, every new horizon of clarity opens new vistas of seeming confusion and the lack of clarity. And this is the nature of Torah. As Shlomo HaMelech metaphorizes, Apples of gold wrapped in silver filigree. And they look so beautiful. And then you peel off the filigree and you find that it's gold beneath the filigree. And then you continue to peel off layer after layer after layer endlessly. Because the depth of the Torah is endless. He says, this is the Torah. This is the meaning that the wine, the Torah is like spiced wine. You remember that, Medrash? The kunditon, the spiced wine. He says, so it's like wine meaning it never, ever slakes your thirst that always increases the appetite. Medrash said it's like dvash. It's spiced wine. It's like honey. What does that mean? Why is it like honey? What does that mean? He says, Hadvash, achila ma'ata yofa. A little bit of honey is always nice. A touch of honey, as they say. But meruba, if you have like globs of honey, it's kosher. It's actually difficult. It's too sweet. It's sickly sweet. 
So he says there is the mystical, the secret esoteric elements of Torah that cannot be the foundation of one's Torah. One needs to learn the Torah in a literal way. And then you'll appreciate the beautiful, mystical, spiritual wisdom. So that's the meaning of honey. It's the study of Pneumia Satera that sweetens the entirety of Torah. As the Rebbe explains, in the Kuntras of Yonah Shatera's he says, not as people think that the Torah is Kabbalah. Torah's Achsidus is that which sweetens and deepens the flavor of the entirety of Torah. And that's why elsewhere, Chassidus is metaphorized as salt. In the Mimer of the Alter Rebbe, in the Kutatera, Lesash Bismelech, because it brings forth the natural flavors. And then like nectar, it adds a sweetness. And now, moving on to the peppery taste. And just as pepper can only be eaten or consumed when it flavors something, when it's mixed in, nobody chews on black pepper. So to the greatest secrets of Torah. Don't reach for what's beyond your pay grade. The parabolic elements of Torah. That you have to keep working on taking, so to speak, purifying, taking the lessons out, digesting the Seichel and the Kur Habina in your own mind, being able to remove or extract that which is life elixing, that which can elevate you. And that comes when it's, so to speak, purified through the prism of the teachings and the phrases and sayings, the foundations of our sages. And that's the notion of Tzrufa Ma'id. So what did he say to Mamlayas? What is he explaining to us? I think, I think what he's saying is that Tzrufa Ma'id means the Torah has been made palatable for us on many levels. That's the meaning of Tzrufa Ma'id. It's been cleansed. It's been, it's been, it's gone through so many iterations. It can speak to us on so many levels. It can talk to every element of our being. It's not that there is dross or toxins in Torah. It's that the Torah is perfectly honed to be able to influence and to uplift and to transform every element of our existence. And there is nobody ever who can say the Torah can't speak to me. The Torah can speak to all of us. Tzurufa Ma'id means that it's so precise in every iteration. The dross is a metaphor. And that's the dross in the metaphor. About Shlomo HaMelech was considered to be the wisest of people. We are told, spoke 3,000 parables of stories. And that's the wisdom. So Hasidus asks, that's the wisdom? That he is a storyteller? That he could tell a thousand stories, two thousand stories, three thousand stories. So Chassidus explains it means that Shloim HaMelech was able to relate the Torah to three thousand different levels. His brilliance, his profundity was such as that he was able to relate each idea of Torah to each specific level, to each bracket, to each grade, so that each person would be transformed through the Torah that he or she would ingest. 
What bothered David HaMelech so much? If the Torah was esoteric, if the Torah was distant, if the Torah couldn't be appreciated by people, how could you be angry? How could you be angry when they don't understand the Torah? They don't understand what you understand. If they could understand, David HaMelech, what you understand, they'd love the Torah too. David HaMelech says, no. Hashem's Torah has been purified and purified and purified. It's been made palatable into every single level. Sometimes it's a dash of pepper and sometimes it's a spoonful of honey. And sometimes it's a glass of wine. It can talk to everybody. Nobody has an excuse. Nobody can say Torah didn't find itself into my mind or heart unless I didn't allow it in. Nobody can rightfully claim I would have been inspired by Torah. But Torah didn't talk to me. Hashem purifies Torah 49 times. There are proverbially speaking memtes, Share Bina. There are 49 gates or a range of analysis and understanding. 49 different ranges, 49 portals. The Torah has been arranged for each of these portals. As the Alter Rebbe says in her husband is known at the gates. The Alter Rebbe says, He quotes and explains and elucidates the Zohar. He says, Through your gate, and in your measure, we are supposed to relate to God as we can best relate to God. You know your proverbial husband, you know your spouse, you know God. Bisha'arim through your gates. Hashem in His kindness and His love for us distilled the Torah and distilled the Torah and distilled it and distilled it, not removing toxins or drashas for sholem, but making it precision driven so that everybody can and therefore must relate to and absorb the messages of Torah. And when David HaMelech saw this being ignored, when he saw people who passed over their purpose in life, and they prospered, and they were very satisfied and happy, yet missed the essence of their existence and the very purpose of their being created, and ripped him apart. As they say in English, it's killing me. It's killing me, said David. It's killing me to see how people ignore the words of the Torah. It's annihilating me, cutting me up to see how Yiddishkeit is underappreciated when Yiddishkeit, when Torah has got everything for us. When you see somebody who turns his or her life into a mess, when you see them turn their back onto Yiddishkeit and God and Torah, don't be angry in a selfish way. It should shake you to the core. It should break you up because of what they're missing. Because of what you love. Because of what you've been privileged to see in the Torah. And that, my dear friends, I think is the meaning of these exquisite and extraordinary verses. Timsasni kinosi kishachud varecha. David is torn apart, broken to pieces entirely because his enemies, his adversaries have forgotten, so to speak, the Torah. But the Torah is so available, it's so refined, it's so perfectly precision-driven for everyone. And your servant, David HaMelech, learned to love the Torah 
and wished that they could too. And that's perhaps some of the wisdom and meaning that's encoded into these two extraordinary verses. Some of what I said is only my understanding, and I may, of course, be wrong, but this is as I understand the words of our sages, the words of our rabbis. I'll finish off with the notion that the Me'iri, he says, Shahakrisa vihishmida oisi. It's cut me up, it's annihilated me, he says. says it clearly. Belay sig, he says, Imras Chatsufa. Not that the Torah objectively has no toxin. It's drossless for you. It's able to be perfectly ingested by you because Hashem gave the Torah to each and every one of us. And now, what's asked of us is that we simply absorb and ingest its message and allow our lives to be elevated and uplifted. And as we hear these words of Tillam and as we feel a sense of frustration at the world around us, this should impel us to reach higher, to yearn more deeply, to live better, more fulfilled lives as Torah Yidin, so that very, very speedily and in our time, the forgetfulness will dissipate forever and everybody will appreciate the purity of Hashem's words as it is written, Kulam Yedu Eisi, when Mashiach comes, all will know Him. Bimheira will be Amenu. Amen.